Let's just bow our hearts as we uh, turn to God's word now. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that in you there are just so many blessings. Lord, that you have promised us an abundant life. Father, a life that is so far beyond the, the conception of the people of this world. Lord, your wisdom is so far above the, the wisdom of this world. And Father, we just pray this morning as we turn to study this most incredible book, Lord, that deals with this subject of wisdom, that you would open our understanding. Help us, Lord, to, to really take hold of these things and apply them to our lives. Father, may this not just be an academic exercise where we learn information, but Lord, may this be uh, implanted in our hearts, that it would change the way we act and think. Lord, everything that we do would be for your glory. And so Lord, we just commit to you this time. Lord, speak through me. Lord, give us ears to hear, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Proverbs... We read chapter 1, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man will of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels to understand a proverb and the interpretation the words of the wise and their dark sayings a phrase dark sayings if we look in psalm 78 we read there verse 2 and 3 i will open my mouth in a parable i will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us so we see that this idea of dark sayings is that which has been passed down the wisdom of the ancients if you like the wisdom of those who have gone before us you know we used to live in a world where people used to respect their elders uh, we now live in a world where as uh, we read about in uh, Timothy people don't respect their elders people don't respect their parents people have become um, so disrespectful uh, and it's just very symptomatic of the world we live in and of course the Bible has made it very clear the direction that the world is heading in but of course traditionally it's been this way that we respect those who have gone before us their wisdom but of course if we just think about this in the bigger picture the whole evolutionary paradigm says that we're improving Well, that should mean that as we go on, each succeeding generation should technically be getting better and understanding more and having greater insight and so on. Well, we can't deny that from a technological point of view, things have improved. But, of course, from a moral point of view, from an ethical point of view, from pretty much every other standard you look at it, we see that we are declining. And actually, from... um, a biological point of view as well, we know that as the Bible says, we are degenerating. The human race is getting worse. Um, there's a wonderful book by uh, Dr. Sanford who explains that genetically we are degenerating. And it just makes a mockery of evolution. We're not getting better. And of course, in terms of our understanding of the truth, well, we are moving so far away from those things. And we can glean so much from the ancients. And the time that Solomon writes this, 
Of course, you know, he's looking back to his own father, David, and even before him, the, the ones that had gone before in Israel, some of the greats, the Isaac and uh, Jacob, of course, and then Abraham before him, and then going back to Noah, and then all the way back to Adam, and the wisdom that these people had. Adam was made a direct creation of God, an incredible intellect, uh, we understand from the text. So, you know, this has been passed down from generation to generation. And so Solomon is saying that, you know, we need to listen to those people. And of course, for us, we have God's word, which gives us these things. So what is the purpose of the book of Proverbs? Well, we've just read there. It's for attaining wisdom and discipline. That's a hugely important part of this process. It's not just knowing things. It's about discipline as well. It's for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, for giving prudence to the simple. For understanding proverbs, parables, sayings and riddles of the wise, as we just mentioned. But why? What's the purpose of all of this? Well, really this is the manufacturer's instructions. You know, God has created us. He knows everything there is to know about us. You know, men are not particularly good at looking at instructions. I think you'll generally agree. We get a new product and we take it out of the box and we put the instructions to one side. We don't need them. And we'll try and figure out how to work it. And then about half an hour later, our wife will say to us, why don't you read the instructions? And reluctantly, occasionally we do. But of course, with God, he's given us his word. And his word gives us the instructions that we need for life. And the whole purpose of this is that we live a blessed life. Jesus said that he came... To give us an abundant life. That's a life so far beyond the understanding of this world. A really, truly blessed life. So many times in scripture. And you can do a great study going through the book of Psalms. Looking at the number of times where we read, Blessed is the man that. And then we're given the conditions that if we do this, then we'll be blessed. But it's not just that we have a great life. But it's that we have a God-honoring life as well. That we honor our creator. We're very familiar, of course, with 2 Timothy 3.16, where we're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration uh, in the uh, Greek literally is God-breathed. It's the breath of God. All scripture is the breath of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. This is how we're to live our life. And Proverbs, of course, is a major part of this in giving us this instruction into right living, how we should be right before God. The word we have, righteous, just being right before our holy God. Of course, there's no question about the authorship of the book. We're told very clearly it's Solomon. Uh, And we know that um, 1 Kings 4.32 tells us that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. And we're told again in Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 4 that he's the wisest person that ever lived, as Gerard highlighted. Even Solomon could go off the rails. So it's not just about having the information, it's the application of that as well, which we'll talk about. Time of writing, about 10th century BC. In chapter 25 through chapter 29, we're going to see that we have some proverbs there that were written by Solomon but that actually were compiled and arranged in the way we have them by the men of Hezekiah, so some 300 years later, around about 700 BC. As we've mentioned, we're studying this section now of the Bible, which are referred to as the, sometimes the wisdom literature or the poetical books, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And we'll look at those last two books, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, next week. Um, but again, the Pro- book of Proverbs, Oswald Chambers, in his how-to series, as he calls it, God's how-to series, um, the Proverbs is how to act. So it's a very practical book for us. It's, in a sense, God's book on how to wise up and live. 
you know, it's beyond just keeping laws. It's not just about obeying a set of precepts. It focuses on leading an aggressively dynamic life, a truly blessed life. And the proper and improper attitudes, conduct and characteristics are referred to in succinct and penetrating ways. God gives us here things that are very simple to take on board, but very, very powerful. Hebrew word, this word proverb, mashel, it simply means a, a comparison, an aphorism, that's a, a, a saying expressing a general truth, um, sentences of ethical wisdom, uh, ethical maxims as well um, that we have here. It's been said, one commentary put it this way, that short sentences from long experience. You know, you can't be experienced to, to be a good teacher for us. And uh, we have here great little uh, summaries that are gleaned from those experiences. Of course, the whole idea of these things as well, that they're easy to remember. This isn't supposed to be something that's obscure, that you have to spend hours trying to dig into. Uh, and what we find is there's a, a, a real uh, condensation here of much wisdom, but in a very small space. Interestingly, we look in um, the New Testament, in Second Peter, and we're given a glimpse of where God would have us go. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, we, we read, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So we're taking the faith, we're saved, we're born again, we've been given faith. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, to every man is given a measure of faith. But we're to add to our faith. So this is the, the growth process in our lives. Virtue. Well, virtue is moral excellence. Having a real, um, just a great moral standard in our life. And we're to add to virtue knowledge. Well, knowledge is spiritual understanding. It's the understanding of spiritual things. And then to knowledge we're to add temperance. Which, one commentary puts it this way, it's kind of mastery over our evil inclinations and appetites. It's being in control of the self and your, your, your particular um, uh, the inclinations of the flesh and so on. We're to add to temperance, patience. You know, patience really, a great summary of patience is waiting for God. Not rushing ahead, but waiting for God. And of course, the classic prayer is, Lord, give me patience and give me patience now. But you know, patience is one of those things that's learned through experience. And uh, the book of Job is a great lesson for us in patience. Just being prepared, prepared to wait, knowing that in the final analysis, God will be proved just and right and holy and pure and everything else. And we just need to be sometimes patient and wait on God. But to patience, we're to add godliness. What is godliness? Well, one way of understanding godliness is looking at godlessness. Those who are godless are those who are not accountable or don't believe they're accountable to God. They live without God in their lives. So godliness is the, the flip of that. It's, being, uh, it's living our lives knowing that God is there, knowing that we're accountable to God in everything that we do and think and say, even the things that go on in private, even the things that just go on within our own hearts and minds, everything that we do and think and say, being accountable to God and then living like we really truly believe that God is sitting on the throne and that we are accountable and one day every knee will bow before him. To godliness, we're to add to that brotherly kindness. And of course there is a family element in this, that as Christians we are related, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's the kindness that you would show to your own brother. Now again, um, different families have different um, um, relationships. Some, some brothers get on really well, others don't. I'm very blessed, I have a brother that I love so dearly, we get on very, very well. And, uh, you know, I, I know what I would do for my brother. I'd do anything for him. He means so much to me. 
you know, and to have that kind of love one for another. And it's a love that gives without really thinking. And of course, to, to that, we're to add charity. Now, in the modern translations, that's translated love. Um, and of course, it's the same word in a sense, but charity does kind of give us a little bit more love. Sometimes we, we kind of lose the meaning because we're so familiar with it. Charity is giving at a cost to ourselves. And in a sense, that's what love really should be. Sometimes we, we don't really understand love. We use it so flippantly. But this idea of charity, giving the, in a way that will cost us something. It's very much David as, as he's on the, the threshing floor of Ornan. He, he's uh, given the opportunity of having all of this for nothing. And he said, no, I'll not give to God that which costs me nothing. Well, that's the kind of charity, the love that we're to add. Uh, a love that gives to other people where it will be of a cost to ourselves, but we do it out of a willing and gracious heart. And all of these things are to go together. And we're told in verse 8, if these things be in you and abound, so it's not just having a small measure, but these things abounding in our lives, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the way we should be. We should be overflowing with these things. And really, all of this ties into this idea of being wise. This is godly wisdom, adding these things to our lives. As I mentioned a moment ago, we have the, the wisdom literature. There's the books we've mentioned. Um, some people classify some particular section of Psalms, as you can see listed there, and also some elements of the New Testament, as well as also a, bit, a portion from Chronicles that really fall specifically into this title if you want to be picky about the, the structure and the titles here. What is wisdom? Well, it's the application of knowledge. You know, we go through life, we pick up things, we learn things, but it's how do we apply them? And that's really what wisdom is all about. Wisdom and knowledge aren't the same thing. There's two types of wisdom, of course. There's the wisdom of this world, and there's the wisdom that's from above. If we look in the book of James, we read, This wisdom, speaking of the worldly wisdom, descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. In other words, it's out for its own ends. For where there is envying and strife, and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. A very stark contrast drawn between the wisdom of this world and godly wisdom. The word wisdom in the Hebrew, uh, this uh, chokmah, um, it occurs 45 times in the book of Proverbs. And it really, it's all about being knowledgeable, experienced, and efficient in the areas of expertise. That's what it's really referencing. Um, and we see here this practical uh, suggestion, this mental acumen. Um, so that's the word suggestion, just foresight, discernment, uh, perception, the ability to make good judgments. And obviously this functional skill as well, actually being able to practically apply the things that we know. But it includes this moral, upright living as well, which also stems from having a right relationship with the Lord. You see, a lot of these things we can't do on our own. We need to make it very clear that if we're to uh, apply or to apply the knowledge that we have using the wisdom that God gives us, we can't do it in and of ourselves because naturally, the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. We need God's Holy Spirit in us to allow these things to be worked out through us. It's not something that naturally we just incline to or we can try and do. 
So we have to understand all of this in the context of it's only a born-again life, a life that has been born again by the Spirit of God, that is really truly able to be wise and apply these things. Well, as we're looking at, and Jared shared with us a short while ago, Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as was mentioned, that that fear isn't a fear that is kind of um, fear of punishment or wrath. It's, It's a reverent, holy, awesome God that we stand before. And it's having appropriate uh, action or reaction uh, to that God. That's the fear that we're looking at here. It's a fear that makes us humble before this incredible creator who has come down to meet with us and reveal himself to us. And of course this makes the Hebrew concept of wisdom very unique. It's totally different than we find in other ancient cultures. But wisdom, according to scripture, stems from, starts at, this fear of the Lord. And of course, to be wise in the biblical sense, you've got to begin with a proper relationship with God. As we mentioned a moment ago, only a life that is truly born again can begin to comprehend these things and to move into this life uh, living uh, by wisdom. First Corinthians, we have a great portion there, starting in verse 17 of chapter 1. Um, Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, Isn't it strange how the world loves to try and use words to impress how wise we are and so on. But not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You know, we're not to try and eloquently convince people intellectually, whatever else. Just simply the cross. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You know, you can almost get that picture that God is calling these people one day to stand before his throne. All these wise men that have said all these things about God's word, about the Bible and and so on, about creation and so on. And they've talked about, of course, the evolution and the the wisdom of this world. And one day they're going to stand before God and they're going to have to give an account. And God's saying, where is the wise? You know, you can almost imagine this kind of sea of people standing there. And God asking the question, okay, put your hand up if you really think you're wise. You know, and at, one, at that point, you know, what will the likes of Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawkins, and so many of these other people that have uh, made all these statements about God or their opinion of God and so on, what will they say when they are standing before him? Where is the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God... The world by wisdom knew not God. In other words, the world is so clever and it's so intellectual that it's kind of removed God from the equation. You know, the whole idea that science can't prove God and so on, so therefore we've got to dismiss God from the equation. I mean, it's a, it's a ludicrous position. I mean, Dave Hunt was once talking to a professor, I believe, on an aeroplane, and they were just talking about science and that. And uh, this professor was saying that pretty much we've, you, know, you have to dismiss God from the equation. And he said, hang on a minute. He said, you're saying that the greatest discovery that science could ever make, you're put it to one side. He said, you know, just if science could prove that God exists, wouldn't that be the greatest discovery? And this scientist, this professor admitted that of course it would be. 
And yet that's one thing that they're not allowed to consider. It's been put away from them. May it please God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's interesting, isn't it? The Christ himself is here raised up before us as the wisdom of God. Well, it's interesting, you know, we look at the so-called wisdom of man. We've got a whole bunch of these things. There's um, look before you leap, but then we've got he who hesitates is lost. Or which one of those is it we go with? Then we've got a man gets no more than he pays for. And the best things in life are free. Which one of those? They're kind of they're a contradiction, of course. And uh, leave well enough alone, or progress never stands still. Well, again, we have a contradiction. Many hands make light work, and too many cooks spoil the broth. Well, again, which one? A rolling stone gathers no moss, and a setting hen does not get fat. So, I mean, all these kind of worldly ideas. And for every maxim, everything the man would put forward, there's always going to be a, a counter-argument to it. But when we come to God's word... We don't find those kind of contradictions. Everything we find is very clear, very simple, uh, and it's designed again to increase our understanding and knowledge. Well, godly wisdom is described as eternal in Proverbs chapter 8. The creator of all things, the beloved of God, to yield your life to Christ and to obey him is true wisdom. As we said a moment ago, Proverbs 1 verse 7, again we're told, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, just to mention, before we start to look at some specific examples of these things, um, we mentioned last time as we were looking at the book of Psalms, and it's sometimes helpful to understand how these things are constructed and put together. Hebrew poetry doesn't work in the same way as it does for us in England, uh, with our particular rhythm and rhyme and so on. Our poetry, typically we have every other line rhyming or so on, and a particular rhythm um, that, that tends to go through the poetry that we're familiar with. But Hebrew poetry is arranged around the parallelism of ideas, things that from a a thought point of view actually go together. We mentioned last time we have what's referred to sometimes as synonymous parallelism. We'll just touch on these briefly in a moment. Uh, Antithetic or uh, contrastive parallelism. And then the third one is synthetic parallelism. Just to give you again, just a breakdown of some of these ideas. The first one, synonymous parallelism. What we find is the second clause restates what's given in the first. So again, with the Hebrew poetry, we don't have this kind of rhythm and rhyme, but we have an idea that's stated, and then with this synonymous parallelism, something that then is adding to that. It's kind of building, uh, restating what's already given. An example uh, of this we find, judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. So they're both saying the same thing, but it's just restating in a slightly different way what's already been given. That's Proverbs 19, 29. Well, another uh, option here is this antithetic or this contrastive parallelism. So we find an idea that simply is in contrast with the first thing that's said. So the light of the righteous rejoices. But then in contrast to that, this is Proverbs 13 verse 9, but the lamp of the wicked shall be put out. So again, you have this um, 
one stated uh, as a, a truth and then we have the absolute opposite of that given so this contrastive idea again this is all part of the way that Hebrew poetry is formed and then the third idea is this what we refer to as synthetic parallelism and it's simply developing expanding adding more information in a sense so Proverbs 20 verse 2 is an example of that the terror of a king is as the roaring of a lion so that's the first statement, but then it builds. He that provokes him to anger sins against his own life. So those are the kind of ideas that we find. That may be helpful as you read through Proverbs, you start to see how these ideas are put together uh, and build up. Just a very brief uh, outline of the book. Well, the first nine chapters, what we're going to see there is wisdom and folly contrasted. This kind of introduction in a sense. And really the first nine chapters of Proverbs are very much an introduction to the Proverbs that will then follow. So from Proverbs chapter 10 through to 24, we've got the Proverbs of Solomon, and these are the ones that he wrote and set in order, in the particular order that he did by himself. And it's interesting because we get a lot of to and fro you find an idea, and then a few chapters later, again, that idea pops up. It's kind of this... Um, um, it's like a very complex tapestry, uh, the way it's all put together. From chapter 25 through to 29, we've again got Proverbs of Solomon, but they're set in order by the men of Hezekiah. So for whatever reason, they arrange them in this particular way. And then the last couple of chapters, we've got the Oracle of Oga, uh, which we'll look at. Very interesting, a very interesting prophetic overtone to that. And then finally, a chapter that we're very, very familiar with, I'm sure. Um, the Proverbs of Lemuel's mother. We'll find that that's Solomon. Uh, is a Lemuel, another name for him. Um, and so we'll see an interesting um, section there just to close out. Now, obviously, we can't go through the whole of the book. We don't have time in a summary like this this morning. Uh, what we're going to just do, though, is look at some of the key themes that we get through the book of Proverbs. Now, one of the things that is helpful to understand is that we've got various characters through the book of Proverbs that we find that are addressed. That helps us to kind of see uh, the pattern and the plan through this. Firstly, um, we've got the three groups of people, if you like, who need wisdom. Well, that's going to be the scorner, the fool and the simple. Now it's very interesting because we actually find this, if you look at the people you know, you'll find some people who are scorners. They scorn the word of God. They don't care for anything. There's the fool. Of course we know the fool has said in his heart, no God. Doesn't want to know God. It's not that he says, I don't, or God does not exist, but it's I don't want to know God. He just rejects God. And then there's the simple. And we'll talk about these as we go through. That of course is going to be contrasted with the wise. So these four kind of groups, in a sense, are going to be uh, highlighted as we go through the book of Proverbs. Firstly, then, the scorners, they mock at God's wisdom. I'm sure you know people in the world like that. It's too high for them. They, they, it's just there's something that is beyond their understanding, their thinking. So they just mock at it. Uh, and they'll not admit it because they know everything. I'm sure, again, you've met people that are in this position. The Hebrew word for scorner literally means to make a mouth. We can easily picture them sneering and curling up their lips in scorn. Uh, They never profit from rebuke, and as a result of that, they'll one day be judged. So that's kind of our scorners. Well, the fool uh, that we come across in the book of Proverbs is the person who's dense, sluggish, careless, self-satisfied. Really not that bothered about anything to do with God or anything else. Again, they've said, no God, I want to live my life my way, a very carefree attitude. 
Nabal, uh, we find in 1 Samuel 25, is a great example. His name means fall. A good example of that. He was so content with living and eating and drinking and doing his own thing. Really not interesting in anything to do with God. Well, the fool we find hates instruction. Doesn't want to be told things. Is self-confident. Sure that they've got it all right as they are. And talks without thinking. Again, probably smiles come to some of our faces. We think of people we know that are in this kind of bracket as well. And it also mocks at sin. Sin is just a joke to these kind of people. Well, then the third group is the simple. The simple are those who believe everything and everybody. And they lack discernment. You know, you've met these people. People that you can talk to maybe even about the gospel. And it's like they agree with everything. And then the next minute they're off again doing what they were doing before. They just don't seem to, it just doesn't seem to sink in. They're led astray very easily by others. And they have this general lack of understanding. Uh, They cannot see ahead and as a result they repeatedly walk into trouble. Well, that's of course contrasted with the wise. Now if the wise, we're told, they listen to instruction. Of course this is applying to you here this morning, okay? So you're the wise. So the wise, they listen to instruction. And again, all these, the proverbs that, that these verses are coming from, you can see in the margins here. So uh, as you go through the notes afterwards, if you want to, you can check these references. So uh, again, the, the, the wise listen to instruction. They obey what they hear. They store up what they learn. And they win others to the Lord. What a great privilege that is. They flee from sin. They watch their tongue and are diligent in their daily work. So it's just a number of characteristics typically that we see of the wise are as others we could pull out as well. It's interesting when we contrast then this kind of wisdom and folly, these things that we find through the book, we find there's actually three calls from wisdom and there's three from folly. So three things that wisdom presents for these individuals to make a decision on. And then folly puts forward its own suggestions as well. And it's interesting we see a real pattern through this. Because wisdom calls us to God and to life, and folly calls us to sin and to judgment. And there's no, of course, secret behind the fact that behind folly, we have that great adversary, the devil, who's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that wants to pull everybody away from God. He wants people to be in a place where they really don't care for the things of God, or scorn the word of God, or whatever else. So... So the first call that wisdom uh, gives is a call to salvation. We see that in chapter 1, verse 20 uh, to 33. The second call of wisdom is to wealth. And this is, of course, material uh, blessing, but it's also wealth in, uh, in depth of spiritual understanding and everything else. It's a general uh, picture that's been given here. And then the third call that wisdom gives is to life. So chapter 8 is the one that we see that wealth. And chapter 9 is called to the life. Now, the first call, salvation, is given to the scorner, to the fool, and to the simple. But interestingly, the second call is only given to the fool and to the simple. The scorner is not interested. The scorner doesn't want to listen. And the third call is only given to the simple, this call to life. It's interesting as we go through and break these down. So... Again, you notice that we have this kind of regression in the sense of who the offer is made to. I think it's quite interesting because sometimes we get into that place where we may be speaking to people and there almost is a biblical precedent laid down here 
There are actually some people you're wasting your time with. And it does not imply for a moment that you don't preach the gospel. But sometimes as you're speaking to somebody, as you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you realize it's not going in. And sometimes, and I've been victim of this myself, you can spend a long time with an individual and you think you're getting somewhere, you get to the end of the conversation and you realize that nothing has gone in. And actually you've been much better off employed speaking to somebody else. It's, it's worth understanding the differences between the scorn of the fool and the simple. And again, seeing that these calls go out in this kind of way. So, also interesting then, as we look, we see then the calls of folly. The first call is to condemnation. Of course, that's what um, um, folly, that's what the, the devil would have of everybody, to condemn that's what he seeks to do. The second call is to poverty. And really the, the root cause of that is kind of laziness, apathy, and so many other things. And then the third call is to death, by rejecting all the things of God. And what we see, the results of these, well, the scorner rejected wisdom. So wisdom calls, again, this call to salvation. Rejects wisdom and meets destruction. But listened to folly and received destruction. Well, the fall, again, They rejected wisdom and they were led to death. And they listened to folly and received death. It's interesting, isn't it, how the fool would reject wisdom. That's with the scorner. And yet they listened to folly. It's such a strange thing, in a sense. Why would you choose to listen to something that, if only a little bit of thought went into it, you'd see was leading you down a very dangerous path? And the simple as well. Again, rejects wisdom, and we find ends up in hell, in an eternity separated from our Creator. And again, listen to folly, and again, the same result, ended up in hell. So we have this model that we find that's laid out through the book. So it might be helpful as you go through and you read these, uh, these uh, characters um, that, as we go through. So the scorner, the fall, and the simple, the ones you want to look out for as you read through the book of Proverbs. Okay, so let's just talk for a moment about the blessing of wisdom. It's interesting that wisdom is personified. Uh, We find in chapter uh, 3, I think this is, uh, the wisdom cries without, she utters her voice in the streets. So she utters her voice. Kyle and Dillich, their commentary makes this comment. They say, wisdom is here personified. I represent it as a person. But this personification presupposes that to the poet, wisdom is more than a property and quality of human subjectivity. She is to him as a divine power, existing independently, to submit to which is the happiness of men, and to reject which is their destruction. If I may paraphrase their comments this way, wisdom is not a product of human imagination, but divine decree. So if we want to be wise, we're not going to be wise by listening to the people of this world because it's not a human invention. It's not something that we've sat down and decided. This is divine. It's from God. True wisdom doesn't come from man. It comes from God. Now, with wisdom, we find that she's more precious than rubies. She's a tree of life. She shall preserve thee. She shall keep thee. She shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honour. She shall deliver thee, and she is thy life. Just some characteristics we find from chapter 3 and chapter 4, speaking of wisdom and the blessings that come from this life. We find, interestingly, in chapter 2, this kind of path and progression of wisdom, that wisdom protects our path. In chapter 3, wisdom directs our paths, and in chapter 4, wisdom perfects 
our paths. So this whole idea of buying into this wisdom, you know, giving ourselves over to godly wisdom, allowing that to permeate our understanding, our thinking, our actions and everything else, will lead us on this path that will lead us ultimately closer to God. Now, we can't avoid decisions. Every day we're faced with decisions in one way or another. The question is, what are we going to do when we're faced with those decisions? You see, it's been said, one commentary put it this way, that decision determines destiny. Quite like that. Because it does. I mean, the decisions we make really dictate where we're going to end up, where we're going to go. You know, we choose either the path of wisdom or the path of folly. We can't postpone the decision or avoid it. You know, we need to have this understanding. And uh, Chuck and Nancy Mizder, particularly Nancy Mizder, talks a lot about those moment-by-moment decisions. You know, every day it's a decision, moment-by-moment, as to which route we're going to take. Are we going to go God's way or the world's way? You know, to choose one is to reject the other. And to reject one is to choose the other. You know, we can't be neutral on this. And of course, this is where the personal challenge comes to each of us. This is a day-by-day decision-making thing that we have to go through. And unless we understand God's wisdom, unless we read Scripture, and particularly reading through the book of Proverbs, we'll talk more about how we can apply that and do that later, but unless we are understanding these things, then the natural inclination will be to go the world's way, because that's the voice so often we hear. Sin, of course, always is alluring. It will pull us, it will draw us. Folly does everything it can to make sin attractive. There's no question that sin appears attractive to us. That's why we're tempted by it. It never reveals, though, its true nature. It never tells people that its house is on the way to hell. Of course, if people could see clearly the end game of these things, it would change their perception, it would change the decisions that are made. But all we look at is a very, very short, we have kind of like very, we're very short-sighted very often in the decisions we make. The only way to detect folly is to walk with wisdom. It's very interesting because unless we're walking with wisdom, we're not going to see or expose folly. Those who walk with wisdom, obeying the word of God, are not easily tricked by folly. We'll find also that it takes time for judgment to fall. And this is why the simple, the fool, and the scorner all thought they had it made. Because they rejected wisdom and nothing disastrous immediately happens. And many people are in that position that they choose not God's ways. They choose to go their own path. They reject God's wisdom. They reject God's moral standard and so on. And everything seems okay. So, well, there you are. There's no God. It doesn't matter. I think it was... um, Mussolini, yes. And I believe that it was him, wasn't it, that, uh, that stood up a, t- a hill at one point and said that um, if there be God, or if God exists, then let him kill me now. And um, nothing happened, so he concluded there's no God. Of course, later God did answer his prayer, and uh, he now knows. But, you know, this is the, the way the world is. that they, they, they think they're getting away with it, so they conclude that everything's okay. Judgment eventually catches up with them and as Galatians 6 verse 7 tells us whatever a man sows that he will also reap Satan of course does appeal to the flesh this is the one of his great mechanisms and we're going to see a lot in the, the book of Proverbs about the wicked woman or the strange woman and of course that's very appealing to a young man's appetite she tells him that he can use his body as he pleases and not suffer for it 
Of course, sexual sin leads to tragic results, both in body and in soul. And people don't tend to think about the soul element. You know, they think they can get away with it from a bodily point of view. They think it won't have any effect. It does. But more importantly from the soul, how many lives have been absolutely destroyed by living a a carefree life in regard to uh, sex and the things that go along with it. Well, we also find that God continues to call. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. You know, and as long as people were here, God's spirit continues to call. But when sinners refuse to obey, their ears become deaf to the word of God. And we should all be aware of that. If, if only there was this lovely line drawn and we had the world on one side and Christians on the other and these things didn't apply to us. But the reality is that our consciences can become seared as with a hot iron. You know what it's like when you, you, know, you cut yourself or you burn yourself and you get a scar and that scar just loses sensitivity. Uh, I was doing some woodwork when I was re- doing our lounge a year or so ago and I managed to join with some lovely new chisels for Christmas and really sharp and uh, I've got a nice little scar there and there's, just, there's no feeling there now so you know what that's like well the Bible speaks of our consciences becoming seared and if we kind of choose not to listen to God in a particular thing well there comes a point that our hearing becomes dull to God's call in that area it's almost as if you know we, we know that when we are born again we are to transform our minds, they're to be transformed uh, and renewed. And our heart is to be replaced, but it's almost as if the heart is made up of lots of little compartments and gradually, one by one, those little compartments are replaced and renewed. Because sometimes we retain some of the things that we used to like, some of the things that we used to be comfortable with of the world. Maybe they could be sin, maybe it could be just things that would have just keep us moving forward in our relationship to God. And unfortunately, we can't just apply this to the world. Of course, it's true. If sinners refuse to obey, their ears become dull and deaf towards God. Pharaoh is a great example of that in Scripture. and so many others we could cite as well. Saul is another good example. But, you know, even for us, this is an area we need to be very, very careful of. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What a privilege it is that God would call to us, that he cares about us so much that he wants us to be living this abundant life. But again, he gives us free choice. What a scary responsibility. Let's just read some scripture. Proverbs chapter 8, first five verses. Does not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice? She stands in the top of high places by the way of the places of the paths. She cries at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. And unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple, understand wisdom, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Here, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. For my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing froward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that has understanding and right to them that find knowledge. Receive my instruction, and not silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and find out knowledge of witty inventions. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. Blessed is the man that hears me. 
watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. For whoso finds, uh, finds me finds life and shall obtain favour of the Lord. But he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All that hate me love death. Stern words as you look at them in this context. And we have this choice. Joshua speaks, doesn't he? Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Moses talks to the children of Israel and says, you, know, to, you can choose blessing or cursing. He says, but choose life. These themes echoed through scripture. We realise how powerful our choices are. Well, of course, we get to the heart of the issue. The question then is, what is your most important stewardship? What's your most important responsibility? What has God given you that is the most important thing that you have to look after? Is it your career? Your family? Maybe your spouse? Or no, the scripture would make it clear. Your heart. It's the most important thing that you have, that you've been given the stewardship over. We read in Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Interesting, William Harvey, back in the 17th century, he discovered that the circulation of, of blood um, ran our, our bodies. And of course that revolutionised medical science. And yet here we are, back in Proverbs some 2,700 years earlier, and there's a recognition of how important the physical heart is. But of course this is dealing symbolically as the heart being the centre of our, our being. And Jesus said that it isn't what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, and so on. You know, our heart is so, so important. As I mentioned earlier, we comprise of three essential elements. We're made in the likeness of God. We've got our body, which is the physical container. We've got the soul, which is the real us, made up of our heart and our mind. And then there's the spirit, which is our God consciousness, if you like. People talk about their conscience. You know, sometimes a conscience comes knocking on the door. And, you know, we're aware of these things. Of course, we understand the body, that's very easy. But the, the, the simple fact that the spirit is there and the soul are two separate entities, in a sense, in us, because we have those moments where we go to do something and then there's that voice that says, Is this right? Should you do this? Who is that that's talking? What's that voice? Well, it's the spirit within us that God has placed there to check us against doing things that are wrong. We have that kind of moral standard. But the soul, again, the real us, the eternal part of us in a sense. When we die, the spirit goes back to God who gave it, we're told in Ecclesiastes. But the soul is the eternal part of us. It's made up of our heart and mind. The mind, again, to be transformed. But the heart, well, that's the part that Jeremiah reminds us is incurably wicked. And this is why, even when we become Christians and we have this new heart, as David cries in Psalm 51, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Even when we're born again, we still have to check our heart. Our heart is very emotional. Our mind is intellectual. Our mind deals with reason. And you know those, those conversations you have internally where your mind says, no, don't do this. And your heart says, yeah, go do it. And your mind says, no, don't do it. And your heart says, yeah, go do it. And you end up with this kind of dichotomy internally, don't you? That's the way it is. And our heart, of course, sometimes it's right to follow our heart. Sometimes we may be worshipping God and the mind is saying, no, don't do this because look, other people will look at you or whatever. And your heart is going, no, I just want to worship God. And you raise your hand or do whatever and praise him. You know, and the, the, but there's other times that the heart is going off down a particular path and the mind is saying, don't do this. 
And we have this kind of, again, just battle. That's the real us. And this is where this decision-making really takes place. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. Well, another theme that we find through the book of Proverbs, this whole idea of sexual purity. And really, this all goes back to Exodus 20.14. We're told there, you shall not commit adultery. And it connotatively includes sexual sins prohibited elsewhere in Scripture. Plenty of Scriptures that deal with these things. You know, Jesus himself speaks of fornications, Matthew 15, verse 19, and so on. Um, The Council of Jerusalem, interestingly, when talking about the things that believers should hold on to. So the question that was being asked in Acts 15 was, okay, if we're not under the law anymore, what part of the Jewish system do we adopt adopt as Christians? And one of the things that was said there was, we must, one of the issues, one of the things we must steer away from, reject totally, is fornication. And of course it includes sexual sins condemned by the law of Moses and so on. And we have these kind of two phrases in, in Scripture. Fornication typically is kind of some sort of intimate relationship that's outside of marriage. And then adultery, referencing a, a, an intimate, an unlawful intimate indulgence within marriage. Um, and so of course that's why we find that Israel are referred to in this way as committing adultery. Because they go after their foreign idols. And even us as Christians um, we can be guilty of kind of this spiritual adultery as we go after the, the things of the world or the flesh. And both those words, the adultery and fornication, are inclusive of all the various forms of sexual sins, either in act or in thought. Proverbs 5 is a a key chapter uh, that we find on this. Um, And of course the experience we find goes from sweetness to bitterness. If we allow ourselves to go down this path and follow the lust of the flesh, it may start very sweet, but it will end up being very bitter. Proverbs emphasises the importance of looking ahead. Look where it's going to lead you. Look in the final analysis. What will you get out of this particular situation? Where will it take you? Is it something you really want? And the answer to that question is going to be no, it's not. It will bring pain. It will bring heartache. You know, people refer to this kind of this, this moment of pleasure bringing a lifetime of pain. And how many lives have been messed up because the focus has been on the moment of pleasure, not on the lifetime of pain that can follow. It will also, from uh, Proverbs 5, verse 7 to 14, it will take us from gain to loss. It's amazing how much these things will take away from us. Temptation always includes hopeful promises. Otherwise, of course, people wouldn't take the devil's bait. The sin is the most expensive thing in the world. It will actually cost us in real terms financially, but it will also cost us morally more than we can ever allow or account for. It will take us from purity to pollution. And again, sex within marriage is a very beautiful thing. Uh, We're told it's kind of as a river that brings forth life and refreshment. But sex outside of marriage is a sewer that defiles everything it touches. It's quite a good picture, actually, of the way these things are, because we don't see them. When you're in that situation, when you're faced by those moment-by-moment decisions, you need to have it settled before you get there. It will also take us from freedom to bondage. You know, it's the kind of bondage which can't easily be broken. John 8.34, Romans 6.16 make reference to these things. That people that indulge in sexual sin, it can really mess you up for years and years and years. It's a very, very dangerous game to play. Uh, and again, this is why the book of Proverbs and so many other scriptures are here to give us the information we need, to warn us before we get there and make the mistakes. 
Because again, in that moment, in the heat of the moment, well, it's so easy to not make the right decision. We need to have it uh, kind of permeating our thinking, the word of God. Well, those that indulge in these things, we find they lose the word of God, they lose wealth, they lose enjoyment, and they lose their good sense. And uh, many examples could be cited. They also lose their peace, which is probably one of the, the biggest things, that, that sense of... Uh, of just knowing that something is wrong. For the world, of course, they don't realize, but for us, it's a relationship with our Creator. And God has given us very clear rules regarding how we should live. And that peace gets removed. Well, Proverbs 7 talks about, again, an individual that would walk down this particular path. And we see that he tempts himself. Uh, We find that he's out at night, walking, as it were, in darkness, allowing himself to be put in a situation of compromise. And again, we're all in the position that we can allow those things or reject them. As we said earlier, you know, to reject means to choose to walk the other way. We find also that he's tempted by the woman. <clears throat> he tempts the Lord as well as part of the process. And of course we tempt God when we deliberately disobey him and put ourselves into situations so difficult that only God can deliver us. You know, sometimes we, we move it almost to the realm that we're in, totally incapable of dealing with the problem anymore. And unless God steps in, you know, and even then, we have to cry out to him. But, you know, these areas we just need to be so, so careful of. Again, that scripture from Galatians. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Okay, so that's one of the big themes we find through the book of Proverbs. Another one, very interesting, I'm indebted to Ron, our former pastor here, for this one. Um, this whole idea of uh, this becoming surety for a stranger, this is a theme that recurs through the book of Proverbs. Let me just read from chapter 6, verse 16 onwards. My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou art stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, deliver thyself when thou art come into the hand of thy friend. Go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. What is this saying? Well, the idea is that your friend needs something. His friend is needing money or whatever. And you agree with him that you're going to lend him some money. And it's saying that kind of thing is a very dangerous game to play. Because you don't really know. You don't know where this is going to lead. And it could end up with so many problems. But this really is talking more than just about a monetary exchange or anything else. This is talking about alliances that we make. What alliances do we make with the things of the world or the people of the world? You know, really, subtitled here, we've got, be careful what you condone or approve. What you put your name to. A very interesting situation these days we have of course social media and for the people that use social media you know you have the option on on twitter book and these kind of things you know you could like something but everyone else gets to see what you say you like as a christian that's exactly what this is saying are you becoming surety for a stranger are you approving something how does that affect what people think of you as a christian what kind of witness are you putting forward what about the kind of company we keep? Are, you, are we approving things by the company that we keep? Or the places that we frequent? Or the things that we do in our lives? 
You know, we need to be so careful, again, what we condone and what we approve. You know, in so many areas of our Christian walk, this is a big challenge to us. We need to think, before we say, you know, oh, that particular speaker, they're really good. Well, do we really know them? Do we know their heart? Do we know what they teach? You know, or are you going to suddenly find yourself aligned to somebody who all of a sudden is spouting off heretical teaching and so on? You know, we need to just be a little bit cautious about, again, who we approve. Jesus speaks in John's Gospel in saying that he knew what was in man. Oswald Chambers, I think, put it this way, that Jesus trusted no man but was suspicious of no man. I quite like that, that, that way of putting it. But, you know, we also need to be the same. This is really what this is saying. Don't trust people. Why? Because we are fallen, sinful human beings. And be very careful who you stand up and support and everything else. Of course, as a body here of believers together, we should stand for each other. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is a very, very stern warning for us about what we approve and what we don't approve. Another interesting thing, we have God's hate list given to us. Proverbs 6, there's six things that the Lord does hate. Yes, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among brethren. You think, well, is this right? Does God hate things? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because in Scripture, Ecclesiastes 3.8, there's a time to love, a time to hate, we're told. Deuteronomy 16. Neither shall thou set up any, any, any image which the Lord thy God hates. Thou loves righteousness and hates wickedness, Psalm 45.7 tells us. Revelation 2.6, we were told there, Jesus speaking, but thou hast this, that thou hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We have a God of love. That means God is capable of hate. But God's hatred is a pure hatred. It's not the kind of vengeful type of hatred that sometimes we think of. It's hating things that are not pure, that are not holy, that are not righteous. And they're the things that God hates. And we should also hate those things. What's the most painful sin? Well, many would contend that it's the sin of gossip. Gossip, of course, is a form of betrayal. And Proverbs speaks lots about this. It's accountable for so much pain within the Christian church. You know, it's uh, very common, it's casual, yet hurtful beyond imagining so often. And quietly, behind the flurry of daily priorities, it's venom does its silent work, undermining confidences, betraying relationships, and spreading unseen injustices. You know, we, we've got to be careful, because sometimes we have this phrase, don't we? Oh, well, well tell me about it, and I, so I can pray for you. Now sometimes we may say that and we may genuinely be praying, but sometimes we forget to pray and we're very quick to pass that on to somebody else. Uh, Many people, uh, Christians within the church, not just this church, but the church in general, get injured by these things. Of course, for us, if somebody tells us something, what an opportunity it is to display loyalty and love by assuming, again, the most charitable construction in advance Well, I don't know about that situation you're describing to me. I do know that person. And until I know a little bit more, I'm not prepared to pass judgment on that. Again, in a a strange way, the moment somebody comes to you gossiping and you go along with them, you're becoming, it's kind of that surety for a stranger. You're approving what they say. We need to be very careful about what we hear. It's an opportunity to to love and to show support for those that we uh, know well and certainly those who are part of our fellowship. 
The tongue, of course, is ready and willing instrument to talk about our neighbour behind his back. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, uh, Paul addresses that. There'd be backbitings and so on, the things that were going on in the church in Corinth. What is a, a true friend, by contrast? Well, it's one who doesn't require explanations. One who gives the benefit of the doubt. One who's loyal and shuns any form of betrayal. You know, we need to be careful that if we hear something about somebody and we know that person, we need to be just a little bit careful. If we jump on the bandwagon, uh, again, Proverbs deals a lot with this, this whole issue. Well, another area, what's our most dangerous weapon? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. It's a tongue. The tongue is so dangerous. When it's used for good, we're told that the tongue in Proverbs 10.20 is valuable silver. And a beautiful and fruitful tree of life. A refreshing well of water. A healthy dose of medicine. But of course, in contrast, the tongue sorry, should be used for the right purposes. These are to bring peace, giving wise reproof to those that are erring, delivering lost souls from death, teaching people the things of the law. That's what we should be doing and carrying the good news of the gospel. But of course, in contrast, the tongue can also be used for tail-bearing, gossiping, as we were just saying, lying, talking too much. It's interesting how much scripture speaks about that. Talking too soon, too hastily, flattering and quarrelling. In regards to tail-bearing, Moses specifically warns about that in Leviticus 19.16. Kind of his management by hearsay, you know, things that we hear of other people. And we're told, we're warned to stay away from the tail-bearer. Because it kindles fires, it causes so many problems, it destroys friendships and so on. Words can be deadly weapons. Solomon compares deceitful words, interestingly, to three different weapons. In Proverbs 25, 18 we see this. We have a maul or a battle axe that crushes at close range. So sometimes it could be somebody very close to you and their words can be very destructive. Also a sword that cuts or an arrow that pierces and can be shot from a distance. This is how powerful words are and Solomon warns us about these things. Lying, of course. God hates the lying tongue. It's only covering up sin in the heart, of course. It's deceit in the heart that makes a statement a lie. It's the, intents of, uh, the intent of the heart uh, that really is the issue there. The Bible tests and reveals the intents of the heart, we're told in Hebrews 4.12. But lies are like cutting swords. And the truth, as we said a moment ago, is like a healing medicine. The truth is eternal, but lies will be revealed and the liars judged. Truth will deliver souls, but lies only lead to bondage and shame. Liars enjoy listening to liars, surprisingly. The heart controls the ear as well as the lips. And the liars, all liars we're told, will be punished. And when they eat their own words, it will be like gravel, Proverbs 20 verse 17 tells us. Hell is waiting for the one who loves and practices a lie, we're told in Revelation 22. Lying is such a big problem in today's society. You know, everybody's so familiar with it and they're just so used to lying to each other. But us as Christians, there should be a marked difference in the way that we live our lives, the way we speak. Just a couple of other things. Talking too much, interestingly, this is addressed. We're told that the fool talks too much and talks his way right into trouble. His mouth becomes a trap. He himself is snared by it. Uh, We're told, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. A loose tongue, uh, poverty and foolishness uh, come as a result of that. And many people would rather talk than work. 
interesting, I'm sure, that uh, in your work environments you've experienced those things. A controlled tongue means a safe life, Proverbs 13.3 tells us. And a person of few words is regarded as a person of knowledge. Not just talking too much, but talking too soon as well. We're told in James 1.19, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. You see, God wants us to be thoughtful people, not just reactionary. Restraining the lips until you really have something to say, really, is what Proverbs 10.19 says. A godly person will study to answer, but a fool will open his mouth and pour out foolishness. Our prayer should be, Lord, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. It's from Psalm 141 and Psalm 39, referencing there. Well, also, God wants us to search out each matter carefully and then give a fair judgment. We're not to agree with the first cause. You know, somebody might say something, we're to listen, that we may seek to understand both sides before we make a decision. Potiphar, of course, is a great example of someone who didn't listen, made a snap judgment, listening just to one side, and Joseph ends up put in prison. He was guilty of no crime. David, also in a similar situation, jumped to conclusions about Mephibosheth, although he was innocent. Um, his servant had uh, spread these lies and David had just believed it without checking and so on. So there's an onus on us to be thoughtful and to check these things. I love the, one of the problems we read is that even a fool can seem wise when he's silent. Flattery is an area that we're warned about as well. Um, <laughs> Sometimes it's insincere praise given by one who has very selfish motives. So when people do kind of give us compliments and things, sometimes we just need to be a little bit aware. It can be uh, the enemy behind these things. It's a dangerous net spread before the innocent man's feet, Proverbs 29.5 tells us. A flattering mouth works ruin, 26.28. And the flatterer's mouth is an open sepulchre, Psalm 5 verse 9 we're told. So... We're warned not to meddle with people given to flattery. So, and there's many other scriptures we find on that basis. Quarrelling is another thing that we're warned about. Uh, anger. There is, of course, righteous anger that's proper, but there's also unrighteous anger, anger which is displays of temper and so on. Uh, an angry person keeps adding fuel to the fire. The best way to stop an argument is with soft words. Proverbs 15, the first two verses tell us, uh, and the best way uh, to break the bones of uh, being able to control one's temper is the same as ruling an army or an empire, Proverbs 16.32 tells us. That's an incredible statement. And you realize the power of the temper and the anger that we can uh, hold back by simply being self-controlled. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, I won't go through all of these, but here there's a number of right words that we should say. Things that we should be using to express to other people. Uh, words that are true, that are fitting, that are kind, carefully chosen. But there's also wrong words as well. And again, just for the notes, you can look at these references. We've mentioned lying already, but slandering, gossiping, constant talking, false witnessing, and mocking. All of these things are wrong. And we need to be so, so careful with the tongue. Okay. Well, one of the just areas to mention is this area of mind control. And this is in particular 
Proverbs 21, we're told, Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now there's a, a big study and a section we can do. I was talking to Simon yesterday, and he's starting, um, he's going through the book of Ephesians at the moment, and uh, the verse he's up to is about, don't be drunk wherein is the wine of dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. He said he's going to take seven weeks going through that one verse as he looks at this issue. Of course, we should be filled with the Spirit. The issue is, who is in control? And the moment you give yourself over to drink, you're no longer in control. And the words here, wine, it's typically wine as we understand it from fermented grape juice, um, as opposed to this Hebrew word tirosh, which is fresh, fresh grape juice, nothing uh, prohibitive of that. Um, strong drink, though, uh, the word there in the King James, it refers to strong drinks made from barley, dates, or pomegranates, typically. So, you know, you've got wine and beer, the whole kind of thing is encompassed here in this verse. And we're just warned about these things through Scripture, how they can just ruin your lives, how many lives have been messed up through alcohol abuse. Of course, being drunk, intoxicated, was forbidden for priests, for Nazarites, and for others we find in Isaiah as well. Interestingly, that we've called to be a kingdom of priests. The whole idea of the Nazarite was you were separated, set apart for God. Well, that speaks of us. You know, these things are not for us. There's many other passages that condemn, condemn drunkenness as well. And really, again, it's about who is in control. I love this verse from Thessalonians, and this should be a great standard for all of us to live by. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. You know, people have this kind of like, well, how much can I do? How much is okay? You know, how close to the edge of the cliff can I drive before it's dangerous? No, no, no. Paul says, abstain from all appearance, even if it just looks like it's evil, keep away from it. Why? Because you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and you've been called to be an ambassador. Wherever you go, you are always on duty. I I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, I went up to the Christian Resources Exhibition. And there was this stand with t-shirts with kind of off-duty vicar, off-duty minister, off-duty pastor. You know, and you could buy these t-shirts. I wouldn't want to do that. Why would you want to be off-duty from God? You know, just think, if God was off-duty from you for just a moment... God never is off duty. God is always watching over us and caring for us. You know, we can't be off duty. We have got to abstain from anything that even looks like it's evil. Because we're ambassadors. We're representing our king in a foreign realm. The question, of course, is are we truly set apart? And how would the world interpret your conduct? Colossians 3.17 tells us, Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, this brings us just to the last couple of chapters, and we're not going to read through them, but just a couple of highlights just to, to be aware of. In the opening of this chapter 30, the Oracle of Arga here, interestingly, um, Arga, the, it seems to be a title, it simply means the collector. Well, Ecclesiastes, we find Solomon referred to as the preacher. So it just seems to be a title for Solomon here. Um, certainly commentators of the past have accepted that's the case. Um, Solomon, we know, had several names. Jedediah is actually his real name, beloved of Jehovah. That was given to him by Nathan. And what we find here is a very interesting kind of prophecy that's given. 
Um, this Jacob, the, uh, Argo, the son of Jacob, Jacob again seems to be a title. It means carefully religious, obedient, or pious. And commentators accept that then Jacob is a reference to David. So what we have here is the words of the son of David, which is just an interesting thought in itself, but particularly as it builds, because we have even the prophecy the man spoke. Now, if we break down the Hebrew words, what we have is effectively the mighty oracle prophesied, because that's really what is implied here in the, the Hebrew text. Now, I'm going to draw this together in a moment, and you'll see. We have two names then are given, because this, this oracle, this prophecy is to be given to these two individuals. And Ithiel simply means God comes, or arrives, or is with me. It's equivalent to Emmanuel, God with us. Ukal, this other name, uh, comes from this verb, which simply means to be consumed. If you put those two names together, you've got God arrives to be consumed. How interesting. Of course, because that's exactly what the Messiah did. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. So, in a sense, what we have here in this opening verse is the words gathered of the wise son of the pious father, or the wise son of the son of David, the prophecy of the mighty oracle, that El, God himself, arrives to be consumed. It's very interesting. And then it goes on. And we have, surely I am more brutish than any man, kind of not the understanding of a man. This, this whole idea of this natural, that Jesus became flesh. He was like any man. He was of the line and the lineage of Adam. All these ideas contained with this opening verse. And then there's, there are actually no negatives in the Hebrew. Um, although it says nor in the, the way we have it translated, the implication seems to be, I was not taught wisdom and have knowledge of the holies. So this whole prophecy seems to be very messianic in its intent. And then it goes on. Who's ascended up into heaven or descended? Well, Hosea 5.15 gives us the answer, referring to the Messiah. Who's gathered the wind in his fists? The Messiah, Psalm 135.7. Who's bound the waters in a garment? Again, that's the Lord God. Messiah, the, uh, Psalm 104 verse 6. Who's established all the ends of the earth? Psalm 72 verse 8 tells us. What is his name? And what is his son's name, if that can tell? A very interesting um, prophetic slant that we have there. I'll let you uh, take that away and look at it. And so, just closing out, the final chapter, the words, effectively, of Bathsheba, Solomon's mum. Lemuel is the name that's given, but it just simply is another title. It means devoted to the Lord. It seems to be a title that Bathsheba gave um, to Solomon, uh, maybe kind of a pet name for him. And interestingly, from verse 10 of this chapter to the end, it's an acrostic. So the first, in verse 10, the first letter starts with an aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second verse, verse 11, starts with a bet, the second letter. So this has been designed to be memorized. So it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So each letter, effectively, is a trigger point for remembering what the verse says. This is something that should be learned. And of course what we're going to see here is the kind of description of the kind of woman that every mother hopes for a son. A wise, good, industrious, not lazy, shrewd, kind, a good mother, virtuous, inwardly beautiful. And of course, most importantly, that she fears the Lord. You know, we have the ideal helpmeet given to us in Scripture in Proverbs 12.4. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favour from the Lord. 
And Proverbs 19.14, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now in contrast, we're told that it's better to dwell in a corner of the housetop, in the roof, in the attic, than with a brawling woman in a wide house. That's why many men have garden sheds, isn't it? Of course, this idea of this. You know, it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. The contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. You know, it's been said before that at the creation, as God creates Eve, that God gave man the position, but he gave woman the influence. And influence is an extremely powerful thing. And wives have such an influence over their husbands. And wives need to be very aware of the influence they have. And as we go through, we'll look into the New Testament, there's some very great instructions that are given for how wives should behave toward their husbands and how husbands should behave toward their wives. If we get it right, then it's a wonderful thing. Well, that brings us to the end. But I just want to leave you with a challenge for the book of Proverbs. And this is something that Chuck Misler has suggested on numerous occasions. And that's to create your own personal log. Okay, so we find, of course, we've got 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. So just go through a, through a month. In the morning, read the chapter for that date. So the first day of the month, read chapter 1. The second of the month, read chapter 2. And go on. But in the evening, go back to it and re-look at it. And note the verse that's been the most relevant for you for that day. And the second month, well... Do the same again. And what you'll start to see is this great, wonderful discovery that very often the most relevant verse seems to have been tailored very specifically to your day. How God will speak to you through his word. Again, this is where we will find wisdom to help us make these moment-by-moment choices. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've not left us as orphans, but Father, you've given us so much. And Lord, you've given us instruction and wisdom, Lord, that we can apply to live our lives in a way that will bring blessing to our own lives and honor and glory to you. Father, help us to absorb these things. Help us to love studying your word. Lord, help us not to be like the scorner or like the fool or like the simple ones. Lord, help us to be wise by choosing moment by moment to go the way that you have called. Lord, even if it goes against our natural inclinations, Lord, permeate our understanding and our thinking with your word so much. Lord, that as David said, your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Lord, may this be the standard of our lives. Lord, bless us as we continue to grow in knowledge and grace. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.